Good morning, everybody. Uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, you might open it up to Genesis chapter 1. That's pretty easy to find, isn't it? Genesis chapter 1. The title of our message this morning is God's Purposes for the Family. I actually was going to call this Focus on the Family, but someone already took that title. But, you know, we, um, we finished, as the pastor mentioned, uh, just a great time of uh, teaching in a seminar here at this church on the whole subject of marriage. And uh, let's see, are the slides working okay? There we go. There's sort of the seminar order that we went through. Uh, we talked about the divine standard for marriage, the problem that the fall of man introduced into marriage and the biblical solution for walking out marriage in a fallen world. And you'll notice at the bottom there of that screen, it says Chafer Theological Seminary. And as the leadership of Chafer Theological Seminary, we can't tell you how much we appreciate this particular church and this body of believers and this leadership at this church for partnering with us uh, in theological education. So thank you very much uh, for that. What I'd like to do this morning is sort of build on some of the things that we talked about at the conference. If you didn't have a chance to attend, I think the sessions are archived. Uh, I think they're going to be up this week, if I'm not mistaken. So, but One of the things we talked about are the divine institutions. You know, God has put into the fabric of fallen culture certain institutions which exists for the purpose of perpetuating or furthering the human race in spite of ongoing sin. Uh, these are what we would call divine institutions and not creaturely conventions. In other words, these are things that God himself has created. And societies that honor these things will flourish. Societies that rebel against these things quickly fall uh, into the dustbin of history. You'll see from the screen there, there's the institution of conscience. And incidentally, these are all found in early Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11, you'll find all of these. The institution of conscience, the institution of marriage and the family, the institution of divine or of labor or work, the institution of human government, and then an institution we're hearing a lot about today with uh, debates about our own borders. Did you all know that we're debating about our own borders in this country? That relates to a divine institution called nationalism. And as much as I would like to talk through all of these with you this morning, time only permits for me to focus there on number two, marriage and the family. When God created marriage and the family, what exactly did he have um, in mind? It's interesting that the family and marriage is one of the most important things spoken of in the Bible. Long before the nation of Israel existed, beginning in Genesis 12, God had already created the family. Long before Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose from the dead and ascended back to the Father's right hand, God had already created an institution called the family. 
long before the church of Jesus Christ, which we are all part of by way of faith, the body of Christ, long before that came into existence, the creator had already created a very special institution called the family. And you'll notice in John's gospel that Jesus performs seven signs, seven miracles. Uh, The whole gospel of John revolves around these seven signs. And isn't it interesting, the very first sign that Jesus chose to perform, the turning of the water into wine. He chose as a venue or as a location for that particular sign, the beginning of his signs, a wedding ceremony in Cana of Galilee. So when you look at all of the biblical data on this, it's very clear that the family the institution of the family, the institution of marriage is something that is a high priority as far as God is concerned. It has been said that the family can survive without the nation, but the nation cannot survive without the family. So that begs or introduces a very important question for us to think about as God's people. What is exactly the purpose of this very important institution called the family? And what I'm going to do with you uh, this morning in the brief time that I have with you is walk through seven purposes for the family. Uh, These don't come from the mind of a psychologist. These don't even come from the mind of a theologian. These come from the mind of an all-powerful creator who himself is responsible for creating a very special unit called the institution of marriage and the family. So let's begin here with number one. What is the first purpose for the family? Number one, it is to provide a place of fellowship and community. Now, when you look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, this is the six days of creation. Do you recall what it says after every creation day? What does it say? It was what? It was good. It says that six times in Genesis 1. Then you get to Genesis 1 verse 31, which is sort of summarizing the whole six days of creation, the whole creation week. And this time, God doesn't just say it's good. He says it's what? It's very good. Then you move from there into Genesis 2, and you read something very interesting in Genesis 2 and verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Genesis 1, everything is very good. And then all of a sudden in Genesis 2, you learn of something that is not good. And what is not good? Man has at this point, humanity has a vertical relationship with God. He just doesn't have a horizontal relationship with somebody else. And what you discover in Genesis 2 verses 18 through 25 is the very first marriage. Where God places Adam to sleep and forms from his side his helpmate, Eve. And you'll notice that these things are happening before sin enters the picture in Genesis 3. Because a lot of people sort of look at marriage as sort of an accommodation to the sinful impulses of man. And that's not a biblical understanding. God created marriage in Genesis 2 
to fulfill something that wasn't yet good in his created order before sin ever enters the picture. So what then is family? What then is marriage? It's a unit. It's a sense of community. It's a sense of belonging. It's a place of refuge in the midst of the storms of life. That's what God intended in marriage and children that come forth from marriage. The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 9 through 12 puts it this way. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist. A cord of three strands is not easily torn apart. So this institution of the family in the mind of God becomes very important. And what you see in the scripture is God is protecting this institution that he created. For example, you travel through the Bible and eventually you'll get to Exodus 20 and you'll see the Ten Commandments. How do you read those Ten Commandments? For years and years and years in my Christian life, I read those as negative statements, prohibitions. And I don't think that is really the proper understanding of the Ten Commandments because behind every prohibition, God is always trying to protect something positive. For example, uh, the Sixth Commandment says, Thou shalt not murder. And there God is protecting the institution or the sanctity of life. In Commandments 8 and 10, he says, thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not covet, but he's protecting something sacred, private ownership of private property. And in Commandments 5 and 7, we read about children should not be in rebellion against parents. And we also read, thou shalt not commit adultery. Are those negative statements? In a sense, they are, but they're trying to protect and promote something positive, the institution of the family. A prohibition against adultery is protection of the sanctity of the marital relationship. As we'll be talking about, the command about honoring your parents is designed to, pr to protect an authority structure that God created in the family. And, you know, as you uh, spend a lot of time on social media, which I don't recommend you do, that social media stuff tests my sanctification to the near breaking point. <laughs> but I see story after story of, of people in our culture that are suffering from loneliness, suffering from depression. Did you know that there's a great concern in our society of an uptick in suicides? And I can't help but think about how many of these things that we see are related to the breakdown of the institution of the family. So God's first purpose is to create the family as a place of fellowship. For it is not good that the man should be alone. The second purpose that God has in store for the family is to provide basic leadership. You know, as, as human beings, we need leaders. Uh, 
were designed to be in structures where leaders that we respect are leading the way. In fact, if you think about it, we really can't function without leadership. This church service that's going on here would be an, an impossibility unless there was leadership involved and those involved were submitting to the leaders. And if you don't have leaders, what do you have? You have Judges 17 verse 6 where everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And so because leadership is so essential and it's so basic and it's so fundamental, what you discover in the institution of family is the very first leadership structure brought into the human race. You might want to jot down a few verses. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 speaks to this. Ephesians 5 verse 23 speaks to this, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. What is happening here is there's a leadership built into the family unit. And it's not just between the husband and the wife, it's between parents and children. Exodus 20 verse 12 talks about this, honor your father and your mother. Ephesians 6 verse 1 talks about this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The book of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 20 talks about this when it says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And obviously when I begin to talk like this, somebody raises, will raise a question, well, what about abusive relationships? And that's not really the direction that I'm moving in today. Those would be the exception to the rule. If someone is abusing their position of power in any leadership structure that God has established, I think the Bible is very clear. Peter talked about it in Acts 5 verse 29, we must obey God rather than man. But those are the exceptions to the rule. Those exceptions, that exception notwithstanding, God has created a basic leadership structure within the family unit. And this is how you can always recognize pagan thought and paganism because paganism will come in and try to subvert that leadership structure, challenge it. Uh, in fact, uh, you might be familiar with the book of Daniel I just finished teaching the book of Daniel at my local church. It took me 63 sermons to get through it. I was almost in the 70 weeks of Daniel longer than Daniel was. So I'm very familiar with the book of Daniel at this point. I mean, I had a great ride. I don't know how the people enjoyed it, but... But it's interesting that when you read the book of Daniel, you read about these Daniel and his three friends and how they were sort of torn away as, as very young people, probably in their teens, to a place called Babylon, modern-day Iraq, 350 miles or so to the east of Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar is the one that was behind this of Babylon. And it's interesting that when you read Daniel 1, verses 6 and 7, those youths had names that all reflected the glory of God, meaning that they came from godly homes. Daniel's name means God is my judge. And then there were three others, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And isn't it interesting that the very first thing Nebuchadnezzar did is he changed their names. 
Daniel's name is changed to Belshazzar, and the other three are changed to the names that we're most familiar with, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's interesting how many commentators just sort of skip over that. But what has just happened in Daniel 1 is an attack on the authority structure that God established in the home. Because biblically speaking, when you name something, it's a sign that you're in charge over what you just named. Uh, Many, many verses speak of this. You might remember Genesis 2, verses 19 and 20, where God allowed Adam to name the animals that God brought to Adam. And in so doing, he was giving Adam authority over those animals. And so Nebuchadnezzar taking these youths and immediately renaming them is significant because he just challenged divine authority in the home. Your parents are no longer the boss, I'm the boss here. That's how paganism operates. Would you say that kind of thing is happening in our culture today? Doesn't, doesn't, uh, you don't have to look far to see challenges. This is some, uh, a transcript that I uh, found, and it has to do with uh, a statement a political scientist made on one of our famous or infamous cable stations, channels. And I, I recommend uh, also, if you get out of social media, dump the cable as well. You'll find your blood pressure really relaxing at that point. But she made this statement, she says, we have never invested as much in public education as we should because we've always had this kind of private notion of children, your kid is yours and totally your responsibility. We haven't had a very collective notion that these children are our children. So part of it is we have to break through this kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that children or kids belong to the whole community. I mean, what is happening with statements like that is right out of Daniel chapter one. It's an attack on the authority structure that the creator himself ordained. Your children do not belong to a school board. They do not belong to a city council. They do not belong to a politician. They don't even belong to a church youth group. Wow, that hurts. I'm a pastor. (laughs) They belong to the parents. And that's the authority structure that God has established. And that needs to be reasserted today. Because as paganism grows in our culture, that's being challenged almost on every front. There's a, a third purpose as to why God created the institution of marriage and the family. And here, of course, I'm speaking of the relationship between husband and wife. Number three, marriage and family exist to provide the proper channel for sexual desire. The sex drive is something that the creator has given to the human race. And if God is going to give that sort of creative energy to the human race, he would also provide an outlet of expression for the drive that he has given to the human race. In this case, we're talking about the sex drive. This uh, principle is as old as Genesis 1 and verse 28, where God tells our forebears 
to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And by the way, I was thinking about this the other day. That's the only command that God ever gave to the human race that we've ever universally kept. Have you noticed that? Every other command we've ignored or neglected. And because of the God-given sex drive, God has created a place within the marriage bed for that sex drive to be expressed. Over in 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 12 through 20, the Corinthians were seeking to satisfy that sex drive by visiting temple prostitutes. Chapter 6 is followed by chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians, where God doesn't just say no to what the Corinthians were doing. What God says is, here's something better. And he begins to point to the marriage bed. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 6, God, Paul the Apostle, as God is speaking through Paul, says this, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill the duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The book of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 4, puts it this way. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Fornication and adultery, obviously, would be sexual expressions outside of the channel, the husband and wife channel that God himself brought into existence in the creation week. A lot of people, a lot of Christians particularly, have sort of a misguided idea that sex only exists for procreation, for purposes of childbearing. And yet, when you read the Song of Solomon, which is probably the most graphic book that we have in the entire biblical canon, talking about that beautiful relationship between husband and wife, you'll discover in the Song of Solomon that children are not mentioned a single time. Isn't that interesting? Of course, procreation is part of it as well, and God brought that into existence, but there's another purpose for the marriage bed, and that's a proper channel for sexual desire. And civilizations which respect this will advance. Civilizations which ignore this will find themselves on the dustbin of history. I'm reminded of a study by J.D. Unwin. He conducted an exhaustive study of 80 primitive cultures, 16 civilized societies, to determine whether there was, there was a relationship between sexual practice and the level of that civilization. He concluded that no society can display productive social energy unless sexual energy is restrained and that the greatest energy is displayed by those societies which require that sexual expression take place only within monogamous marriage. 
In short, civilization cannot survive unless there is some restraint upon sexual expression. The institution of the family, the marital bed supplies this restraint. This is not my opinion. This is what your Bible teaches. There is a fourth reason as to why God brought the institution of the family into existence. Number four, he brought the institution of the family into existence to furnish financial provision. Over in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verses 3 and 4, the church there in Ephesus that Timothy was pastoring had an issue that came up. They had a bunch of uh, widows. And these widows were without basic sustenance and provision. And so the church is trying to figure out, what do we do with all of these widows? There was no uh, safety net of any sort back in Greco-Roman times. And so if a widow became a widow, then she was typically placed into great economic hardship. And so what do you do when that kind of situation arises in a church? It's interesting that what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 and 4, he says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family. And to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. What he's saying is the church is to support a widow if and only if that widow has no family to support her. He's dialing back to early Genesis, I believe, here. And why God brought the institution of the family into existence. Over in Mark 7, verses 9 through 13, you read about some religious leaders that were practicing something called korban. They were following a tradition in Judaism of giving their money to the Lord, and they weren't providing for their parents in their old age. And Jesus says, you have a fine way of elevating the traditions of man over the word of God, because the word of God says to honor your parents. So family has built within it a financial provision for the elderly by the design of God. Now, it's interesting that we have it working not just from the family to a widow, but we also have this working from parents to children. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8 says, if anyone does not provide for his own, And especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a pretty strong language. How could a Christian be worse than an unbeliever? I think Jesus answered that in Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11, when he says, Look, your father loves to give good gifts to you. Don't you in your evil state like to bless your children? Doesn't that come natural to you? And so if a Christian man is not going to support his children, he is acting worse than what even an unbeliever does. It's a a violation of the basic principle that the creator established that the family is to be a place of financial provision. And think if, if this were honored throughout our country. 
Think of the money that could be saved, not only in terms of government programs and things of this nature, but also in terms of resources being freed up within the church. Because what has happened in our culture is we've moved into areas where God has already designed a mechanism for provision. And that provision is the family unit. And there is a fifth purpose as to why God established the family. The fifth reason is, number five, to provide a place of spiritual instruction. Isn't it interesting that the primary place of spiritual instruction, according to God's word, isn't even the church? Of course, the church is supposed to be a place of spiritual instruction for sure, but the design of God is that this spiritual instruction would begin in the home. Paul makes a reference to this in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 35, concerning a woman that might have a question in church. Paul makes a statement, very interesting, not very politically correct today, but he says, let them ask their own husbands at home. Go to your husband. Your husband, it's assumed, is going to have a basic knowledge of the Bible to help you with this. And if he comes up blank, then you go to the church. It's interesting that we have in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, Verses 4 through 7, something that's called the Hebrew Shema. The Hebrew word Shema is a, is the, uh, it's a Hebrew word which is translated listen. Listen up, Israel. That's a translation from the Hebrew word Shema. And notice what Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7 says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Verse 6, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your who? Your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. He says to Israel, listen, here is the design of God for parenting. And he begins to talk about how parents have the responsibility to teach their children diligently. The word diligently means I don't just do it when it's convenient. I don't just do it when I feel like it. It's part of the design that God has given to me as a parent. And watch how this verse explains the didactic, pedagogical teaching process. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Think of this, sitting, walking, rising up, lying down. Wouldn't that encompass ordinary life and the unfolding of life as it's normally lived? In other words, as you're living life, Situations are going to come up in your home and the Holy Spirit is going to give you a great tap on the shoulder and he's going to say, here's your opportunity to communicate spiritual truth to your children. You know, my wife, you haven't met my wife yet, but I think she's probably the best that's ever lived doing this. There was a little incident that happened in our household when my 
daughter, Sarah, was very, very young. She was sort of uh, playing with one of her toys overly, in an overly aggressive manner, as kids can do a little bit. Amen? Not that we never did that when we were kids, right? And in this particular event, the toy broke, and my daughter says to my wife, fix it. She was just learning to talk, but she knew how to say fix it for whatever reason. And she kept repeating it, fix it, mama, fix it, fix it. And of course, uh, you know, my wife made a good faith effort to sort of fix this broken toy. And yet it was unfixable. And the more my daughter sort of discovered, you know, that it was unfixable, the more hysterical she got. And my wife says to her in that instant, you know, Sarah, in life, we're going to make bad choices. And sometimes the choices that we make can't be rectified because there are consequences for sin. But isn't it great that Jesus Christ came into the world to remedy consequences for sin? And there's coming a day in the eternal state when all of our consequences for all of our sin will disappear. And I'm a preacher, okay? I sat there and listened to that because this was happening within earshot. And I thought to myself, you know, I've given a lot of sermons. I've listened to a lot of sermons. But that probably is one of the best sermons I've ever heard. And it happened not because we said, okay, let's get together. Daddy's going to do a preaching time. Think how that goes over in the household. I mean, kids would rather have their teeth pulled than hear something like that. But life is going to happen. These these sorts of incidents are going to sort of uh, unfold. And when that happens, the Lord is telling us as parents, here's your opportunity to teach. That's the instruction that's to take place in the home on a daily basis. You might uh, remember the story of Joshua who crossed through the Jordan River miraculously And they were told at that particular geographical area to set up 12 stones. You remember that? Why were those stones set up? They were set up as a memorial. Notice Joshua 4, verses 20 through 22. It says, the 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. He said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their youth pastor, doesn't say that, does it? When the children ask their school teacher, doesn't say that. What it says is when your children ask their father in time, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel, cross this Jordan on dry ground. One of these days, these kids are going to figure out these stones here in the Jordan are abnormal, and they're going to go to their parents. And that's your opportunity to teach about what God did here in terms of drawing up the Jordan. And as you follow through in that passage, it talks about an opportunity to teach what God did for the generation that came before. And then it talks about how the knowledge of the Lord is going to fill the whole earth through this process. The church isn't involved here. A pastor is not involved here. A Sunday school teacher is not involved here. And I'm, believe me, I'm pro-pastor, pro-churches, pro-Sunday school teachers. But when you actually look at the design of God, it's to go from parent to child. Proverbs 
4 and verses 1 and 2 says, Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Ephesians 6 and verse 4 tells fathers to bring up their children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5, had received valuable training in the home spiritually. He says, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure is in you as well. Timothy, you've got a heritage in spiritual truth. It's called grandmother and mom. And Timothy, because of those seeds that were planted, rose into and became the man of God that he became in the scriptures you know, children don't come out of the womb being trained as doctors and lawyers, right? They have to be trained for those things. So why would we ever think that children come out of the womb moral, biblically informed? God has created the institution of the family for the purpose of that spiritual education within the home. And let me tell you something, mom and dad, you can't outsource this to somebody. You can delegate authority to a Christian school perhaps, but you cannot outsource your responsibility in this area. In fact, the very first church I pastored, the church that I inherited, uh, the, the gentleman that I inherited the church from was retiring. And he said to me one day as this transition in leadership was taking place, he said, you know what? I want you to pay attention to the families in this church. I want you to watch what happens because there are families in this church that will use the church as a babysitting service. They will bring the kids to church, but they won't role model church attendance. They'll go off and do something else and pick up the kids later. And he said to me, I want you to watch what happens to the families, to the children of those families when they hit a certain age in their teens when they can start making their own decisions. He says, invariably, they will fall away from the church one by one. And I want you to contrast it with families that don't just bring their children to church, but actually attend the church themselves, take leadership roles within the church, do ministries within the church. I want you to watch what happens to those children when they get older. And typically what happens, perhaps not 100% of the time, we can all think of exceptions to this, but the general rule is parents that role model church attendance as kids get older, those kids will start doing the same thing. Because so many parents think they can outsource the job of Christianizing their kids to somebody else, and in the process they are circumventing an authority structure which God himself established. You know, it's one thing to tell your kids to pray. It's a totally different thing when a crisis comes up in your home and your kids watch mom and dad drop to their knees in prayer to the Lord. That is a spiritual education that they're getting. They can't get that anywhere else. 
They're not being told to pray. They're not being given a Bible lesson on why you should pray. And of course, all of that's very important. But they're watching mom and dad carry that out. And those are the kids that become the great prayer warriors of the future. We have to respect the institution that God established and not think that somehow our responsibilities as parents can be outsourced to somebody else. This takes us to number six. The sixth purpose of the family is to provide godly and loving discipline. Do we all know about human nature, that humans are not inherently good? Do we understand that? We never got our daughter together as my wife and myself and said, okay, Sarah, mom and dad are going to teach you a few things here. We're going to teach you how to be selfish. You ready? Here's how, you're, here's how to be selfish. Oh, and let me, let me tell you this one. We're going to teach you how to throw a tantrum when you can't get your way. Obviously, those things don't have to be taught. They're intuitive to every single human being. What has to be taught to a child is self-control of emotions, sharing with others. And that is the basic function of the family. I think one man put it this way. Every child has the heart of a mass murderer. I mean, think about it. You watch a kid throw a tantrum and you say to yourself, if this kid was weaponized right now and had the wherewithal to use these weapons, the whole room would be filled with corpses. And so these children come into the world with this sin nature. Psalm 51 and verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my father and mother conceived me. And what then becomes the basic function of the family? It's to rein in that sin nature in children. Proverbs 13, verse 24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14 says, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. If this type of reigning in of the sin nature is not taking place in a Christian home, then someone else has to do it. Juvenile Hall. The police with the wake-up call late at night. And we're living in a culture today where we're being told over and over again that discipline imposed is unloving. The fact of the matter is, doesn't God discipline us as his children? Doesn't Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, does it not teach that the fact that God takes time to discipline us, isn't that proof that he loves us? And that he owns us. You know, I've never disciplined the neighbor's kids. I've been tempted to do it from time to time. But I've never done that. Because those kids don't belong to me. But my children belong to me. And the fact that I'm willing to take time to correct, to discipline, to train, it's, it's proof of the fact that they own, I own them. And I love them. Again, folks, I understand that some parents go too far with this. 
And the Bible is always promoting balance in this area. Ephesians 6 and verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Sometimes the discipline is too heavy-handed. It's ungodly. It's done in a moment of anger. And the scripture gives us principles to follow in those cases when we're tempted to go too far. Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, provoke not your children that they may become discouraged. Sometimes the discipline is so strong and so heavy-handed that you end up beating a child down more than training that child. But you see, this is the vital role of a family. The family exists to provide not just discipline, but godly and loving discipline. And this takes us to the seventh and final point on our list. Why did God create the family? Number seven. He created the family to be a model of evangelism to the unsaved world. Didn't we just hear a little bit earlier today about missions and the need to support missions and be involved in missions? And to all of that, I shout a hearty amen. But the fact of the matter is, perhaps one of your greatest evangelistic opportunities is what unbelievers see what is taking place within your own home. You know the verse as well, Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 25. It says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. What in the design of God is the unbeliever to see when they look at your home, when they look at your marriage? They're to see a beautiful relationship of Jesus Christ towards his church. Have you ever heard the statement, you may be the only Bible some people ever read? There's an awful lot of people out there, you have them in your life, just like I have them in my life, who will never darken the door of a church. They will never sit under a Bible study or a sermon. They will never read the Bible. They're not not even read Christian literature. How How do you reach someone like that? One potential answer is the Christian marriage. Because they can see in that marriage what a loving God is like in his relationship with his bride as we walk out the Christian marriage under the authority of God, in the principles of God, under the resources of God. Not that we're sinless, but we're sinning less as we develop into Christ's likeness and God begins to have authority and rule in our homes. And let me tell you something, your neighbors see that. The unchristian, unchristianized public sees that. And that becomes the design of God. This is why there's so much in the Bible of the permanency 
of the marital relationship. Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25 says, For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Marriage is not just some kind of convention that you change, like you, pull, you know, change marital partners. You take off one jacket and put on another. That's not the design of God. Why not? Because that's not how Jesus is with us. Marriage is something that's to be permanent. Malachi says, I hate divorce. Malachi 2 verse 16. God doesn't hate divorcees. But divorce or things that tear apart this intimate relationship that the creator has established, God hates. Mark 10 and verse 9 says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no man set asunder. And believe me, beloved, I'm not here to pour guilt on people. I understand that people are in different circumstances and the past is the past. I'm here to plead with you concerning the grace of God and its availability regarding anything that's happened in your past. I'm not here to throw any stones at anybody. I'm just here as a preacher of the word of God to hold out the blueprint, the standard. There's a standard here. And it's something that needs to be protected because in that standard is a model of evangelism to the unsaved world. And this, would it not explain the perpetual satanic attacks over and over again that we see in our world and our culture against the institution of marriage? Why is it it's always one attack after another? Because Satan is trying to blot out stamp out this replica of evangelism to a lost and dying world. So in conclusion, as we've tried to look at the divine purposes for the family, why does the family even exist? Why did God create the family so early in history? To provide a place of fellowship and community, to provide a place of leadership, to provide the proper channel for sexual desire, to furnish financial provision as a place of spiritual instruction, to provide godly and loving discipline, and finally to role model Christ to the world. And you say, well, gee, uh, Andy, this is great information. What's the application? I think there's lots of applications here. A couple of things that come to mind is texting. You know, you can go really far in conversations that are inappropriate with the opposite sex. That happens so quick, so fast, and so easy in our culture. And if you're texting in a way where you have to delete the text and erase the text because you don't want your wife or your husband to see whatever it is you're texting, let me tell you something, you're already on the path to adultery. It's just a matter of time. Or how about the family as a place of instruction? Is that happening in our homes? Or have our homes become times of screen time, video games, running off to sports and sporting activities, or even, God forbid, eclipsing our role in the family with too much involvement with the local church? Becoming overcommitted 
this again hurts because I need all the volunteers I could get at my local church. But it's so easy to get involved in all of these other things and to neglect the primary responsibility that we have in the home. Or how about this as an application? Has there, has there been so much anger and so much resentment and so much bitterness built up in your marriage towards your husband or your wife because of things that have happened in the past, and I know things happen. But is there such an attitude of unforgiveness that when an unsaved person looks at your marriage, they don't see Jesus Christ. They don't see Christ and the church. What they see is a, a war zone. And consequently, the evangelistic tool that God has designed for your marriage is being lost. Is that a possibility? And maybe it's time, as Ephesians 4 tells us, to forgive. Why should I forgive? Because I've been forgiven. That's the answer to bitterness and anger. You'll find it right at the end of Ephesians 4, around verse 29. Forgive as I have been forgiven. And the, the resentment dissipates the loving relationship is restored and the unbelievers see in that a picture, a portrait of Jesus Christ. We could go on and on with these applications, but no doubt the Spirit of God has spoken to your hearts in some way through the truth of his word. The family is God's order for the human race. Let us as God's people to preserve it at all costs. Amen. And at this time, I'll turn it back over to uh, Pastor Eric. Thank you. Thank you. Let's just take a moment and, and go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? As you reflect on what was just said from the Word, how, how are our hearts towards the Lord? How are we as uh, temples of, of God, the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, how are we reflecting the love of Christ? As families, how, how are we loving one another? What is God doing in, in our hearts, in our minds, in our thoughts, in our actions? How is he revealing himself through us? How are we praying for one another? How are we praying for other families in the midst of our culture? We're not only the marriage, but all, so many of the institutions are coming under attack satanically. How are we as salt and light walking in God's love and God's truth so that Christ himself is revealed through us? Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for family. I thank you for marriage, the purpose, the design, how you reveal yourself through uh, the relationship of a husband and wife, of a family. Lord, I know there's many families who are under attack, who have been hurt deeply, wounded, viciously. I thank you for grace. I thank you that you are able to heal, restore, 
provide. Lord, I pray that you would do that, that each one would come before you and simply acknowledge our need of you. Lord, I pray that through this church, families would be supported, honored. Lord, that they would be strong, that fathers would lead diligently with balance in your love. Husbands and wives would love one another in such a way that you are revealed to their children. Lord, the children would obey their parents with joy, knowing that they're being protected from things that would harm them. Lord, I pray for grandparents, and I ask that you give them wisdom in how to shepherd and to love their families. I thank you, Lord, for your grace. I thank you for all that you have done and what you seek to do. And I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would simply yield to you and walk with you in the midst of it. We love you and we're grateful. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Can we give Dr. Woods another round of applause? Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. It's wonderful to see you this morning. Uh, Hope to see you at 2 o'clock this afternoon, and God bless you. Hope you have a wonderful day in Christ. Thank you for being here this morning. Take care.